Okay. We are in, uh, yeah, if you haven't figured it out, we take the Word of God very seriously around here and look to uh, center the church around it and you individually have it be your focus of, the, of your life. We know that it is the power of our lives. It's what sanctifies us. It what's, it's what guides us. It directs us. And uh, boy, do we need it. So again, here we are. We are back into the Word of God this morning. We are looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and I'm so glad I broke this into two parts. That was not my original intent, but due to just continuing running over in time, and then today it looks like I even have less time than, than normal, and so we're just going gonna to make this a two-parter, but we're looking, we'll be looking at verses 9 through 12, but just this morning we'll be looking at verses 9 and 10. If you're uh, using one of those blue church Bibles, you could turn, I think, to page 986. That'll bring you to the section that we're going to cover. So it's been four weeks since we've been in 1 Thessalonians um, due to a Palm Sunday message, Easter, and then my brother Thomas uh, preached last week. And... So March 18th was the last time we were in the text. So just a little review, just a little review. So we have, we got the flow of the passage and we have a little bit of context so that we would better understand the text that we'll be looking at, or at least the verses of the text we'll be looking at this morning. So if you let your eyes glance back up to the top of the chapter, chapter four, there's a transition here in the letter. Paul begins to give a series of exhortations and instructions but uh, I'll just read the first two verses, and then we'll, we'll get running here and make, make some comments. Beginning in chapter 4, verse 1. Again, we'll be looking at verse 9 this morning. But Paul says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. So let me remind you of some things uh, that I've said before concerning this letter and what's going on. Obviously, Paul's writing to this uh, young church in Thessalonica, a church that Paul had involvement in, brought uh, to saving faith by preaching the gospel. But before Paul and Silvanus were uh, prematurely torn away, they were there ministering uh, the gospel in the city. Before they were prematurely torn away from their new converts in Thessalonica, we learn about that in chapter 2, 17. And I say prematurely because they, they would have normally wanted to, was their normal practice, they would have wanted to stay longer. In other words, they led them to Christ. They, there was a church formed, a local body of believers there after the preaching of the gospel. But then that's not all. They would want to disciple them in the things of the Lord and instruct them. And so they normally would have spent more time doing that. But they were forced out due to the efforts of a group of unbelieving Jews that resided there in Thessalonica and you can read about that in Acts 17, in Acts 17. And we have, we've looked at that before. But before they were prematurely forced out, they did have an opportunity. They probably spent at least three to six, maybe on the max, maybe six months there before they had to leave, Paul and Silvanus. 
So before they left, they did give the new believers instructions in how they were to walk and to please God, or how they were to live lives that were pleasing to God, okay? Uh, so they didn't, they didn't leave their readers, you know, it wasn't like, oh, you're saved, you've accepted Jesus Christ, bye. That's not what we're called to do. We're called to make disciples or followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so now they had to give these pagans instructions in what it is to be a Christian and what it is to follow after the Lord. And now that they've been reoriented, no longer pleasing themselves, but now having new hearts and new minds by the new birth, they have a desire now to please the one and living and only true God. And they needed instruction concerning that. And so Paul and Silvanus were able to give them instructions in that. Now, while they were in the city of Athens, Paul and his team... Having moved on, it was decided by Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, another part of this ministerial team, this missionary team, it was decided that Timothy would travel back up to Thessalonica to encourage and strengthen the new believers there. This is all review, but it plays into our passage. And also to see how they were doing, to see how they were doing, there was some concerns. Paul was very concerned. The team was concerned. For a couple of reasons. One, they had not been able to spend as much time there with those in Thessalonica as they would have hoped to, as I had said already. Also, they, were, they had to leave because of the persecution of this Jewish group who also stirred up others in the city. And so they could assume that that persecution would continue against the group of believers, brand new believers that were left there that there would be suffering that they would experience because of their new faith in Christ. They had to leave, but those who lived there had to stay and remain under these difficult circumstances. And so you could see why they might be concerned. Paul was concerned. How were they doing? Uh, Had they been tempted to turn away maybe from the faith? And so they send Timothy back, not only to get a report about how are these new believers, these baby believers doing, but also to continue the encouragement and strengthening in the faith. Fortunately, Timothy returned now from um, Thessalonica back to Paul and Silvanus, and he, he brings good news, good news concerning their faith and love. We read about that in 1 Thessalonians 3, 1 through 6. Again, just trying to pick you back up where we, we left off as we've been moving through this letter. And so based on Timothy's good report, Paul was able to say, as we just read in chapter 4, that the new believers were indeed living lives pleasing to God as they were instructed. Verse 1, just as you are doing, just as you are doing. How can he say that? Because Timothy has come back now and given him a report. Paul, they're doing really well. Their faith is strong. Their love is great. They're following the instructions you gave them. And so Paul only asks that and urges them to do so more and more, to do these things that they instructed them in more and more or excel and continue to advance in that instruction that they had received from Paul and Silvanus, and at this point, Timothy as well. So that's verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4. And then, because just so you understand, chapter 4, verses 1 through 12 is kind of one unit. So we've been, we're chunking away at it. We looked at 1 through 8. We're about to look at 9 through 12, but I'm trying to bring you along so you see the flow of the passage. 
So after he says what he said in verses 1 and 2, then in verses 3 through 8 of chapter 4, Paul revisits and reinforces the instructions previously given concerning their personal purity. And he says, and you can see it in verse 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, specifically as a matter of sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And we spent some time already covering that, and I won't obviously cover that again, but why bring this particular matter up? Why bring that up? I thought they were doing well. They are doing well. They are doing well. But if you'll remember, their culture, their uh, sexual ethic, if you will, was completely contrary to what would be pleasing to God. So they're surrounded by this. And remember, these are adults. Primarily, these are adults who have been living that pagan life for some time. It's ingrained. And now they have come to Christ. That was their habit pattern. That was their way of life. And now they're being called to break away from that. Not only that, they're still surrounded by that paganism, uh, which included this sexual immorality as part of a worship. And so certainly Paul would want to address the matter again. It would make sense that he would take time to say, I just want to remind you of these things, reinforce these things. You're doing well, but let me reinforce these things. It's also possible that Timothy, when he came back, we don't, we don't have this in the text, we're not told this, but I think it's safe to assume that he may have told him that some of the members of the church were finding it difficult to maintain that, that new standard, that new ethic uh, that they were to practice in this regard that the missionaries had taught them. And certainly you could understand that. And so he reinforces that. Maybe some were even asking, I don't know, is this really, this, this purity thing, is this really what we are to do? Is this really God's will? And you'll notice at the end of that section, it's as if Paul's addressing something like that because he says, listen, for God has not called us, in verse 7, for impurity, but in holiness. This is what I've explained to you. This is what I've told you. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man. This is not my, I'm not making this stuff up. This is not just what I think is right. But rather, if they disregard this instruction concerning their sanctification, concerning their purity, if they disregard it, if they turn away from it, they're turning away from God. They're disregarding God. And so again, I, I think he's just reinforcing these matters, okay? So, then we come to verse 9. And in verse 9, it's all part of the section still, flowing out of verse 1 and 2, Paul transitions now simply to another topic concerning a God-pleasing life. Hey, who cares about a God-pleasing life? Who cares about those things? Yeah, well, okay, God does, but who else? His people do, right? I mean, that would be one of the things that would tell you right away. If you don't care about a God-pleasing life, then there's a good chance you're not one of his people, all right? You haven't been born again. In fact, it's interesting when you think about it, you look at paganism, you look at the false religions, they are more about finding a God that pleases them as opposed to coming under this God and looking to please him. I mean, that's a sign of the new birth, really, being regenerated, being born again, being saved. You now have a desire to please him. It's not about you anymore. It was about you. 
but it's now about him and seeking what pleases him. And so instructions are given accordingly. But in this case, the topic now is the church or the sphere of the topic is the church or the focus here is the church or God-pleasing behavior among the brethren. So he moves, in a sense, from one's own personal body, purity, to the corporate body, the church, in matters of what pleases God. And what pleases God, beloved, in this matter is for his children, the church, to love one another, to love one another. Is that new news to you? No, but it's news we need to hear over and over and over again, apparently, because it keeps coming up everywhere you look in the scriptures. And this is God's book. He designed it. He wrote it. He knows us. And this also tells us what's very important to him, that he would spend so much time, God and the Holy Spirit, who authored this book to continue to reinforce these things in our hearts and minds. But what's interesting is Paul's approach to this matter, the matter of the church loving one another, this uh, addressing the corporate body and how they can please God, he addresses it a little different than the believer's personal purity. So you'll notice that as now we look at verse 9. Here we go. Now, concerning brotherly love, okay, so I've just talked to you about your personal purity and what pleases God, reminding you of these things, reinforcing these things to you. You're doing well, church in Thessalonica. I've, but I've reminded you of these things particularly. But now, concerning brotherly love, boy, do I have a lot to write to you. He doesn't say that. He says, you have no need for anyone to write to you. Concerning this matter, you have no need for anyone to write to you. So this Understanding the flow, these words then imply that there's a contrast with what was just previously said here. There was a need then for a warning, if you will, a reinforcement, if you will, concerning sexual purity. And again, not necessarily because they were sinning in this area, but as I said, certainly due to their culture and the emphasis of the culture they were living in, and possibly to the report that there were struggles among the body of Christ, maybe even doubts concerning this matter. And so Paul reinforces it. You got me so far? Are you with me? But in the matter of brotherly love, it's different. It's different. So as we take a closer look now at our text, I want to first consider the Greek word translated brotherly love in verse 9. Now we'll begin to break down this passage. So while he says, when it comes to this matter, there's nothing to write to you, he does say something about it, and so we should take a look at it. The Greek word is, does anybody know? Uh, Let me try to pronounce it. It's not, okay, here we go. It's, uh, You'll probably recognize it. It's Philadelphia. Philadelphia. Something along those lines. <laughs> Philadelphia. Fia. It's like that. Fia. Okay. Uh, does that word sound familiar? Huh? Yeah, Philadelphia. F- 
Philadelphia is the largest city in Pennsylvania. And uh, it's called Philadelphia, but it's also known as the city of brotherly love. Yeah, exactly, because that's where they got the name. They took the Greek word there. So that's what it means, brotherly love. But in, um, in non-religious Greek writings, what we would call secular Greek, and also uh, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that word was used in relation to what you might think, uh, blood brothers and sisters, blood brothers and sisters, okay? A, a familial love between brothers and sisters who are born into that situation naturally, physically. But in the New Testament, as one writer puts it, it is applied to the fraternity of faith, not blood. Faith, not blood. One writer says, it is natural that those who know God as their father should love one another as sisters and brothers in his family. In his family. Right. Brotherly love, another author says, is an expression for attachment to one's blood relatives in secular speech, non-religious writings, but it was, that word was taken over by Christianity because of the close ties within the spiritual family of God. They took that word to themselves and applied it to the situation of the church, appropriately so. Okay. Now, when we think about brotherly love, it's not just affection. It's not just affection. As one writer says, this love, which Christians cherish for each other as brethren, is not just a passive disposition of fondness. It certainly includes that, but it's not just that. It manifests itself, rather, in overt acts of kindness toward the brethren. The practice of this brother love was one of the outstanding features of the early Christian church. Jesus had exhibited it in his own person and ministry, and it was present in the Christian community from the first, at the birth of the church. You can go back and look at Acts 4.32. They, sh- they were sharing everything. They had all things in common. They were they were. Immediately, these people were brought together and began to love one another as a family would love one another, care for one another as a family would care for one another. The writer goes on to say, and wherever the gospel took root in remote Greek cities, such as Thessalonica, this family feeling also sprang up among the converts or those who had converted to Christ. It was this feature of its corporate life that made the church so distinctive and drew many yearning hearts into its fold. It was this feature that made it distinctive, this one. Tertullian, in A.D. 192, a way long time ago, not too far from the birth of the church, quotes the heathen, so the heathen would be the unbeliever, not the one who does not believe in the true God, quotes the heathen as remarking in amazement, quote, behold how these Christians love one another. Okay, so something unique, something distinct about the church of God, the true church of God, the church of Jesus Christ, that they would come together into these groups, formed into these groups, and immediately there would be this brotherly affection that took hold. 
Now, why did Paul say there was no need for anyone to write to them concerning brotherly love? Why did he say that? Well, this is interesting, and this is what I want to look at with you. He goes on to explain himself now in the passage, look back at verse 9, by saying first this, for, so I said that because, for, you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. You yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. The verb in this statement, that's how the ESV translates it, have been. The verb there is actually in the present tense. It's in the present tense. So it, I think it would be better to translate it as the NASB does or the NET does because that's the tense of the verb. It's, it's literally saying, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. In other words, this is something that's occurring now and ongoing, not something that just happened sometime in the past. You are taught for you are taught by God to love one another. And it's as if Paul is basically saying, listen, I don't need to write to you about this, or no one needs to write to you concerning this matter because God is teaching you to love one another. He's handling, whatever I would add to it would be redundant at this point. He is teaching you to love one another. And he'll back that statement up in a second. We'll look at that uh, in the next part of the passage. But I want to talk to you a little bit about this, these words he uses here. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Taught by God. Now, that's an interesting phrase. It translates a single compound word. A single compound word. Two words brought together into one. All right? God taught. That's the word in the Greek, brought together and made one word. And it doesn't, this is the only occurrence of it in the New Testament. God taught. So literally saying you are God taught, or you could say divinely instructed to love one another. Some think that Paul may have invented the word himself, because we can't find it anywhere else. So how are we to understand this unique compound word that Paul uses? This is kind of important. Um, Is Paul, some some suggest maybe it's used this way, but the majority of commentators think it's it's not like this. So this, this, here's the question. Is Paul using the word to simply point out that God taught his people through his word, or they are, he is teaching his people, because it is in the present tense, through his word, or through the scriptures, and at this point of history, the scriptures would be primarily the Old Testament. The New Testament is still being written. First uh, Thessalonians is a very early letter of Paul's, the second maybe letter of Paul's. Uh, the gospels still need to be written, and so on and so forth. He hasn't written Corinthians, you know, the whole love passage in chapter 13. None of that's been written yet. So the scriptures in regard to the early church, where primarily was the Old Testament. So is he saying God is, teach, is teaching his people or has taught his people through his word? Or is he perhaps referring to Jesus' commandment that would have certainly been communicated to the body, even though maybe not recorded yet in scriptures, because we don't have the Gospel of John yet, but certainly transmitted uh, verbally to others and told and shared with others that commandment that they are to love one another. 
You know, a new commandment I give you, John 13, 34, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Is that what Paul's talking about when he says, listen, there's no reason for anyone to write to you, for you are God-taught to love one another. I don't think so. I don't think it refers to any of that, and I agree with most commentators. And then one makes this note that the closest biblical phrase we can get to this word that's unique here, God taught, and it's still not the word, but it's close to the idea or to the phrase. It's found in the uh, Septuagint, the Greek translation of Isaiah 54.13. It's also quoted in John 6.45, and it predicts a day when all your sons will be taught by the Lord, taught by the Lord. And it's talking about the new covenant, the new covenant in the New Testament uh, that we understand and learn about more. And in the New Testament, it's the presence of the Spirit. When we talk about the new covenant, it's the presence of the Spirit with each believer and the resultant internal witness to the will of God. In other words, the Spirit of God dwelling inside the new covenant believer is witnessing to the will of God internally in their hearts, inside, teaching them, instructing them. This is uh, what many commentators believe Paul meant to signify by using that word, God taught, God taught. One writer says this, of course God had taught his people in the Old Testament to love their neighbor, and Jesus had given his disciples his new command to love one another. But Paul's reference seems to be to teaching given neither by the Father in the Old Testament nor by the Son during his public ministry, but rather by the Holy Spirit dwelling in our hearts. Dwelling in our hearts. Another commentator says it does not refer to any past historical teaching, such as God's word in the Old Testament or Jesus' commandment of love, nor to the teaching of New Testament writers. And then he says this, rather... It signifies the teaching in their hearts by God himself through the indwelling spirit. It is God rather than a human being who is the teacher. And the teaching refers not only to a partial and fragmentary lesson, but to a permanent relationship established between the human mind and the divine teacher. We are believers born again, pupils all our life through and in the school of God. Another commentator uh, teaching the same thing concerning this passage says this, he adds this, at conversion, believers become lifelong pupils as the spirit, that is the Holy Spirit that indwells every true believer, as the spirit bears inner witness to the love of within the Christian family. He goes on to say, no external stimulus is necessary. Mutual love among Christians is an inbred quality. Okay? I want you to think about that. So, uh, it's worth noting, I think, at this point, that this matter of brotherly love 
is elevated really to the status of the test of whether or not you are actually a Christian in the scriptures. And we looked at this again a long time ago, but again, worthy to, I think, worth thinking about, considering. John uh, wrote 1 John, also the Gospel of John, but he wrote 1 John. And 1 John, he also wrote 2 John, 3 John, and Revelation. John wrote in 1 John 3, 14, this is what he says. We know that we have passed out of death, so separation from God, dead in our sins and trespasses. We know that we have left that domain under the tyranny of sin and doomed to hell. We know we have left that arena, that domain, that sphere. We have passed out of death and into life, union with God, communion with God, the new birth, fellowship with him, and eternal life. How, John? How do we know that? How do we know? What do the scriptures say? Right? Not what someone, you know, tells you this is how you know. But what do the scriptures say? What is the, the particular thing that John says, this is how we know? Because we love the brothers. And he's not talking about humanity in general. The brotherhood of humanity. He's not talking about that here. He's specifically talking about brothers and sisters in Christ, fellow believers, fellow children of God, part of the same new family by the new birth. And then he says, in case you missed it, whoever does not love abides in death. They're still there. They still remain cut off from God. They have not been born again. They do not have God living in them. And therefore, demonstrated by the fact that they do not love the brothers and sisters in Christ, they have no affection for them, they have no desire to be with them, to care for them, to make sacrifices for them. Therefore, they are still separated from the Father and abide in death. A little later in the passage in 1 John 4, 7 through 8, in that letter, he says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Again, love, not love in general, love in one another. Not, well, they are so loving. They love flowers and butterflies and rainbows. That's not what he's talking about. It's a brotherly affection, affection for, care for, service unto brothers and sisters in the spiritual family. And he goes on to say, anyone who again, does not love, does not know God, because God is love. Okay, so don't confuse this with all the nonsense you hear about love, you know, well, isn't, isn't God love? So if I love this other person, then isn't that what your Bible says? And they'll use that to justify uh, an inappropriate love or loving someone they're not supposed to be loving according to the scriptures. So don't use it. They, they twist scriptures. Don't let them do that. Don't let them twist the scriptures in your own mind. This specifically is love for brothers and sisters in Christ that John is addressing and using it as the standard by which one knows whether or not they have passed from death and into life, whether or not they're truly saved. My opinion now, I'm not speaking from the scriptures, but my opinion is we've been studying this lover, lover die. I'll talk about that in a second. 
uh, book in our growth groups, and now we're looking at this book on hospitality, which is simply a ex- way to express love. Uh, on one level, love to the brothers and sisters in Christ. It's, it's, it's one way to do that, a, a wonderful way to do that, to manifest that love. But in our conversations that we've just been having in our growth group, the conversation goes like this about how many experiences that people have had where they, in various fellowships or collections of people called church where they felt nothing like this. There seemed to be anything but love for one another. It seemed more of like just a gathering of folks together for an event. And I would suggest that on one, for one explanation of that would be that the church is just, the church is filled with a bunch of unbelievers, So when I say the church now, I'm not talking about the true church. The true church can only be believers, but those who gather together with them, and so we just generally call there's the church. No, not there's people, and within that group of people, there is the church. Even that's going to be true here at Summit. There is the church here, but likely not all of you are part of it. But in bigger, even bigger swellings of people and in places where maybe these kind of things are not pushed back to people where they have to actually examine themselves to know whether or not they're in the faith, they come in droves. And because they have not been born again, they're just there for the event or for a number of things, but they are not connected through faith in Christ with anybody else in that building. They do not have an affection for their brothers and sisters because they are not God-taught because the Spirit of God does not dwell in them. You see? So, what about love or die, though? I was thinking about this, you know. Okay, so we're God-taught. Those who are the children of God are taught by God, uh, prompted by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit to love and care for others in Christ, others who are the children of God. God loves them, and it pleases him for us to love those he loves. He loves his people. He loves his children. He loves all those he sent his son to give his life for. So what about love or die? You remember we've been going, now not all of you have, so just quickly, love or die, we looked at, I mean, it's you know, this command where Jesus goes through the churches and he rebukes the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2.4 because they had abandoned the love that they had at first. So, uh, and I would say the love that they expressed at the beginning of their life together is the church body. That's how the book says it, okay? So that love extends, as we went through that book, it extends not only love for God, love for Jesus, but certainly love for one another. They, it had grown cold, right? But just so that we're clear, they have, they have something was there in the beginning and then it diminished. It wasn't as if it never existed, right? Because if it never existed, then there'd be no reason to even refer to them as a church, not truly. Because all who are born again are God-taught to love one another. But uh, Jesus rebuked them because it was lacking. It wasn't what it was. So even if you see Paul, he says, you know, listen, uh, there's no need for anyone to write to you concerning these things. As we look at the passage, he'll say, for indeed you are God-taught, and for indeed that's what you are doing. We're going to get there in a second. 
He says, but I want you to do it even more and more. So we're to be excelling these things because as we've read through the pat or that book together, if you're not excelling, then sin and, and our old nature works against you so that it begins to kind of you move backwards in these things. But all the while, the true Christian is God taught to love one another and the Christian life is a life of Guess what? Repentance, repentance, and ongoing repentance as the Spirit of God is convicting the true believer through his word and internally through his witness. He is compelled to align his life so that it is pleasing to God and he sees that he is moving off course and therefore repents and gets back on track with loving brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the Christian life. That's a God-pleasing life. And it's interesting because... At the end of this book, Love or Die, he says, hey, did the church of Ephesus ever get it right? Did they repent? They indeed, we believe, did, based on historical writings. They did heed this counsel, and because they were being taught by God to love one another, they saw the error of their way, that they had let it grown cold. They got back on track, and again, they were known as an incredibly loving church. So in the end, yeah, the church of God will love one another. They'll have ebbs and flows and dips because sin still challenges us every step of every way, right? And sin is selfish and self-centered, and so it's the opposite of what brotherly love should look like. You remember the passage in Galatians 5, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. The new believer in Jesus Christ now is compelled to do those things that pleases God, and yet we have this ongoing, regular battle against our old man, that old nature, and this is why all the instructions about walk in the Spirit, live according to the Spirit, basically bow to him, heed his teaching. And his instruction, and you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. So, then looking back at the text, verse 9. Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been, or I would prefer are, because that's what the text actually has there, the present tense, are taught by God to love one another. Now, how do you know that, Paul? How do you know that? For that indeed is what you are doing. And again, it's present tense. It's not what you have done. It's this is your present practice. And you're doing it to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. So I know that you are taught by God or God taught. I know that to be true. You specifically to this particular audience. How do I know that? Because it's showing up in your lives. It's manifesting in your lives. You are loving the brothers all throughout Macedonia. So this is the proof, really, that Paul provides here, of the divine instruction. It was visible in the love that they manifested toward all the Christians. And he says here, in Macedonia. This is, so this is the Roman province of which Thessalonica, this group of believers, lives. Thessalonica being the capital. He's saying, you're loving all the brothers. It's showing up in your lives. That's how I know you are indeed God taught. He is instructing you. He is teaching you. So they're expressing not only love for their own fellowship, their own local body, 
But anytime they were coming into contact with other believers within their region, and they would be more prone to come into contact with believers from far and away because it was the capital of Macedonia, it was a port city, there was a lot of travel back and forth. And so they had many opportunities then to love even those outside of their own little local body, and they took advantage of those opportunities. They manifested love for these people that they didn't even know. But they didn't have to. They were now brothers and sisters in Christ, and there was an immediate affection and love for one another through the Spirit of God that indwelt each other. It's interesting, though. The one person says, in what practical ways, you know, just asking questions of the text, was their love manifested? Well, we don't know. How, it doesn't say. Paul doesn't say specifically how this love was demonstrated to all the brothers and sisters throughout Macedonia. But the writer says, perhaps in hospitality, which I found fun, because that's the book we're looking at right now, the hospitality commands as a follow-up to our love or die. Perhaps in hospitality, they opened their homes and hearts to these believers. And it could be that Because of persecutions that were following these new believers. Remember, saved out of paganism, saved out of that culture, and the culture didn't like it. It was an affront to them. So they pushed back, and you had these Jewish unbelievers that were chasing Christians around, chasing Paul around, making it hard for other believers, uh, Christians. They may have, because of that, had more opportunities to, to show this love for one another, taking them into their homes, caring for them, protecting them. So, finally, we have to end. First Thess 4, 9 through 10, just coming back to the text. Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. All right? So this characterized this little local fellowship of new believers. And yet he says, but in this matter... As we do in all matters, but in this matter, here's all I have to say. I urge you, brothers, do this more and more. Because this is what a God-pleasing life looks like in the sphere of the church. Excel more. Continue more in this matter. One writer says, there is always room for increase in growth and love. Like a living plant, it must continue to grow and bear still more fruit. And in their practice of love, the Thessalonians, and also in ours, because this would be directed to us as well, believers can never sit back satisfied and feel that they have done enough. In this life, we never reach the goal of ethical perfection. Love must always be stretching out after a close approximation to the divine standard of love in Christ. You know, I was just thinking about as he's making decisions about what to talk about to the Thessalonians, you can see, and in part, based on the report back from Timothy, he makes a decision to start out talking about purity for the reasons that I've already mentioned. But the next thing he says is, he doesn't just go past it. He wants to commend them. He wants to point out, I've heard the good report. I know of your love among all the brothers of Macedonia. For indeed, what else do I have to say? You're taught by God himself. You are God-taught. The Spirit indwells you to love one another. But Man, do I urge you to do this more and more. Why? Why, why? why not just brush past it? Why not just move on? 
because of the importance of love within the body, between, specifically between believers. If they excel here, if they continue to do well here, then all the junk around them can happen. All this stuff can happen, but they will remain strong. They will look out for each other. They will care for one another. They will make sacrifices for one another. They'll take each other into their homes. They'll offer up their finances, offer up their food. And when they serve one another in any way that they're doing it, and they're doing it in love, then as we've talked about, that service will have an aroma to it that is delightful and wonderful and makes you want to continue in these matters. Beloved, we... You know, I just think about it. He didn't say, hey, there were lots. He didn't say this. He didn't say, listen, I heard you're serving each other well, right? I heard, in fact, you're not just serving uh, your body. You're serving all the brothers throughout Macedonia. And, you know, he could have said, we gave you instructions in these matters, serving one another. That's very important. Do this more and more. He could have said that. But remember what Paul says later on when he writes to the Corinthians, if I'm doing anything apart from love, then it's pointless. What a waste of time. And if we go back to verse 1 and verse 2, what is this all about? We gave you instructions in how you are to walk into please God. That's really the focus. So ultimately, where Paul is going, what he wants to focus on, you want to please God, church? You want to please God? then you got to be loving one another. And listen, you are. But do this more and more. And if you're doing that, then all the other stuff will take care of itself in a sense, will work itself out as it is to work itself out appropriately. But if you're not loving one another, I don't care how big your church building is. I don't care how much money you have in the bank. I don't care. It's all going to fall apart. And if, even if it doesn't fall apart, it wouldn't be pleasing to God. And ultimately, that's what matters. You want to please God, brothers and sisters in Christ? Excel even more. And if you're not loving one another, right? If you're not, repent. And if you have, you look inside and you go, I don't even care about these people. I don't even know why I'm here. Or I'm here because I have to be. Then, dear soul, you're still in death. And so I would appeal to you to see the seriousness of that situation and to call out upon the only one who can save you from that situation, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Call upon him, scream to him to redeem you, to rescue you. And then you will have a new heart and new affections, and then you will know what I'm talking about. This love for the brothers and sisters in Christ. It is a spirit thing. It is a God thing. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and help us deep, deep down, Father, because you've made us new creatures in Christ. We do desire to please you and so much stuff gets in the way. But Father, help us. Help us to excel in these things. Help us to see when we've gone off course and repent. Father, I... I don't know what Paul would write to us. I, I don't know what letter he would write to us and the things he would feel he, he would need to address. But certainly, 
While this letter was written specifically to the church in Thessalonica, Father, you determined to preserve it for us. So, Father, let us not just see this as some letter written, ancient letter written to some other people so far away we can't even relate to them. Indeed, we can. And, Father, help us to learn and grow from this and take instruction from it for our own little local body here in North Fontana. May we be a people that are pleasing to you because we are a people who are crazy in love with one another and manifesting that love in very practical ways on a daily basis. Not in our own strength, not by our own power, but by the power of the one that dwells inside of us, the Holy Spirit, who you have given to us because we are now yours in Christ. We pray all these things in our Lord and Savior's name, Jesus. Amen.